Good afternoon. Um, it's good to see everybody here today. Happy Halloween. <laughs> happy Halloween? No? Um, <clears throat> all right, happy uh, Reformation Day. Today is uh, the birthday of the Protestant Reformation, and if, you know, if you're geeky and you're kind of churchy, then you know that you know, this is when Luther you know, tapped the uh, 95 theses and against the Catholic Church, and here we are today. But anyways... Just want to throw out to you, throw that out to you. Um, <clears throat> last week, uh, so this is what I do when I prepare a sermon. I uh, I have an 18-point font. All right, you know what an 18-point font? You read it. I need a big 18 because I'm getting old in my eyes, and so uh, I know that I have a good half hour of a sermon if I've got 10 pages on my tablet on 18-point font. So last week. Uh, I had some technical difficulty uh, with my, la- my tablet because it, it just wouldn't turn on. I got to two pages, and I had eight pages left, and I couldn't get it back on. And so after the two pages, I had to just uh, improvise or kind of do whatever I could remember. And so there was a lot of stuff that I felt like I didn't get to say or didn't get to share. Uh, but it is what it is, and so I'm going to continue. Um, and uh, today, hopefully, there's no technical difficulty, but it looks like everything's good. But we're still here in the same passage, and uh, we're looking here in Acts chapter 16, and we're looking at these, these narratives, these stories of people coming to Christ. And uh, the first person we looked at was Lydia, right? Remember Lydia? She was this Asian woman in Philippi who was making a lot of money. She was uh, somewhat of a moral and spiritual person, but yet she somehow hears what Paul has to say, and she, you know, really, she comes alive. She becomes a Christian. And then Last week, we talked about this unnamed uh, slave girl, probably a teenager. Uh, she's spiritually oppressed, uh, just, as it was, uh, just as you heard in the passage today. She had a spirit of divination, which basically meant that this girl apparently somehow could tell the future, right? She could tell the future, and that's why people were coming to her. Uh, and, and I think already what we said last week was this, that you, you just kind of kind of see that I think Luke puts... Lydia and, and uh, this slave girl side by side. That's to show you how different they really are. We said last week, you know, uh, they couldn't be more different. Uh, this girl is a slave girl, probably sold by her parents, rejected by her family, uh, economically suffering, and suffering with inner demons. On the other hand, on the flip side, Lydia, she was an owner of a high-end boutique, probably, somewhat moral, somewhat already spiritual. This slave girl was demon-possessed. This Lydia, she, she seemed much more normal, mainstream, even respected in society. But they are on extreme opposites of the society. You have rich Lydia, you have poor slave. Lydia, the owner, slave girl, the owned. You have someone who is prominent, Lydia, and then you have someone who is marginalized. They're, they're completely different. And yet what we saw last week was that it's the same grace. I think Luke is trying to tell us it's the same grace that saved this prosperous woman of great social standing, that also saved this young slave girl who had no social standing whatsoever. But here's the thing I want to look at really carefully. As different uh, as rich Lydia and poor slave girl were, they had one thing in common. They were both making money. They were both making money. Did you notice this? Lydia, the entrepreneur, selling purple dye to the richest of the rich, she was raking it in. But if you look in our verse, in our passage here, this slave girl was also making money. As we look in verse 16, it says this, that she had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much 
gain by fortune telling. She wasn't maybe making as much as Lydia was, but, you know, she, Lydia was making a fortune, but so was this poor slave girl. She also, for her owners, was making a fortune. How? By fortune telling. Because back then, and to be honest, even now, everybody's hung up on the future. Everybody's preoccupied with finding out what the future is. I think almost every culture, you know, has someone or something like this. Even in the Korean culture, you know it is. We call them mudang, right? Mudang, right? Someone who could tell you the future. So she's also raking it in. But then why is she still poor? Because unlike Lydia, self-made woman that she was, making income for herself, she was a slave being used to make money for her owners. In other words, this poor spiritually oppressed girl was being exploited for monetary gain by her owners. You see this? Last week we saw the slave girl, but we saw her in her spiritual oppression. But today, what we also see is that she wasn't just oppressed spiritually, she was oppressed socially. Socially. She was marginalized. Everyone looked at her like some crazy girl, right? She was a slave. She was a girl who had no power in society. She was powerless and yet being used by those who had power over her. It isn't just spiritual power that had control over her. It was those in society who in positions of power, owner over a slave, that had control over her. In other words, she's not just a victim of spiritual evil, she was also a victim of social evil, of what we call today social injustice. I, you think I'm making this up, you know, I'm reading too much into it. Look, keep reading. Look at verse 18. What happens? What happens? Well, you look at what happens, and if you, if you could read the Greek, you, you, you know, you wouldn't miss this connection. But Luke has a little play on words here, and it doesn't come across in our English translations. But it says there that Jesus, you know, that Paul goes to this girl, and in the name of Jesus, it says, come out of her. At that very hour, it came out. And then verse 19, when the owners uh, saw that their hope of gain was gone. Now, in the original language, there's one verb we use three times there, back to back. And I think it was done on purpose. It literally should read like this. Paul says, I command you in the name of Jesus, leave her. And it left that very hour. In verse 19, when the owners saw that their hope of gain left. Luke says, the spirit left her and the means of making profit left them. Same verb. Back to back. In other words, I think when confronted with the words of Paul, when confronted with the name of Jesus, this slave girl wasn't just free spiritually, but also socially. At least an aspect of it. Paul's gospel didn't just lead him to a confrontation with spiritual powers. It also led him to a confrontation with the powers that bound this little girl to her current social structures. How do I know? Because as soon as he says, get out of her, and it leaves, and the owners lost 
their, you know, their moneymaker, what happens to them? All styles get seized, right? The owners are mad. They take him to the civil authorities, right? They are accused of being unlawful and breaking the law at that time, verse 21. They get physically beaten, not spiritually, physically beaten, and then end up in jail. They are wrongfully imprisoned, you could say, for helping an oppressed little girl. And I want to suggest something. If you think I'm just reading too much into this, could it be that Luke, the author of Acts, maybe ever so subtly is making the point that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just have an impact on your personal spiritual condition, but that the gospel of Jesus Christ also might have an impact on your relational societal condition. Social justice. All right? And, and look, I'm not a social justice warrior, okay? Uh, when I hear the word social justice as a Christian and as a pastor, I kind of cringe because in the history of the church, that word social justice carried bad connotations because in the 70s and 80s, the Christians moved from more of a conservative theology to start thinking about, well, what can we do in the society and public until they lost the gospel and they, they forgot about the Bible and they said, hey, what's important is we just need to help people. And now the liberal church is on a downward because the church has nothing to say that the world isn't already saying anyway. And so conservative churches, when they hear the word social justice, it, it, it kind of makes them worried because if you're all always talking about social justice, you're a liberal. But on the flip side, the liberals look at us and say, but if you're only talking about evangelism and cons you know, conversions, you're then a conservative. And I don't think it's either or. I don't think you could box someone into liberal or conservative. I mean, think about this. If as a Christian, you only care about people getting equal rights, but you never care about their soul, are you being a good Christian? But on the other hand, if you only care about someone's soul, but you never care about their immediate struggling and, and, and suffering and victimization of the sins out there, their life right now, are you a Christian? I think it's both, right? But I'm not a social justice where I, I don't know enough to do this, nor do I engage enough to do this. I'm going to leave this to the, the, the professionally woke people, right, or, or those people who are, are out there, and you know, more power to them. But here's what I want to say, okay, just to be clear. The Christian gospel is not first a social gospel, meaning it's not to be equated with just social justice. But having said that, true Christianity a real understanding, I think, of who God is and what Jesus did puts Christians in the best reasonable position to pursue justice for others and gives us the greatest motivation to do it. Okay? And that's what I want to talk about. It puts us in the most rational position to pursue justice for others but also gives us the greatest motivation to do it. Now, I'm going to go into a little bit here. Um, you know, freshman year I was a philosophy major because, you know, I grew up in church, and then uh, as soon as I went to Michigan and got away from home, 
you know, I said, okay, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to believe all this stuff, and I decided to be a philosophy major, all right, for two years. Uh, bad choice, okay, guys, if you're going to college, don't ever be a philosophy major. High suicide rate, it's just really hard. Um, but uh, but uh, I still like philosophy, and I, I know that many of us here are not really in tune with philosophy or even sociology for that reason, but here's what I mean. When I say that we are in the best rational position to pursue justice as a Christian, what I'm saying is we have the best philosophical or even sociological justification, warrant, or reason to pursue justice. It's very simple, right? Here's why I think we should pursue justice for people. Because God is a God of justice. I believe in a God of justice. And for us, therefore, justice is a moral issue. Because God says this is right and this is wrong. Like racism is wrong and, and, and equality for all, everyone in the country is right. Therefore, I should pursue this and care about this because my God cares about this. Right? I should care about the poor because God cares about the poor and therefore alleviate their, you know, temporary woes as much as I can because that's what God wants me to do. It's very simple logic there. But here's the question. What if you don't believe in God? What if you believe that there is really nothing out there, that there is only here in this world, that even if there was something out there, you can't know it anyway, so all you have to focus on is us and here. And what do you mean by morality? Isn't morality relative anyway? As many sociologists and, and you know, even biologists will tell you that anything wrong or right is simply a socially constructed idea that's meant to be a practical way that societies can continue to thrive and grow. There's a slogan in our cultural narrative today that goes like this. It says, God isn't necessary for you to live a moral life, and that includes working for the good of all. That's something that everyone kind of believes out there. God isn't necessary for you to live a moral life, and that also includes you working for the good of all. And it's true. That, that's, that's correct. You and I have experienced this as well. There are atheists, there are secular people who are and have been and can be highly moral. There are people that you know that don't believe in what we believe and yet help others sacrificially, live lives of love and justice, pursue those who are marginalized and weak and poor. You know there's people out like this. So it's absolutely true that you don't have to be a Christian to pursue these things. But the question that I have is this. If you don't believe anything out there, how do you justify pursuing these things? This is why I like philosophy, because what philosophy does is that it tells you this. It, it gives you something and says, if this is what you think, let's be a little more consistent. Let's play that thinking out consistently and play it all the way through and ask yourself the question, does your life still make sense? And so, you know, if anyone here says, oh, no, I don't believe in God because science is the explanation for all things, I encourage you to read David Hume. He was one of my favorite philosophers. He was an empiricist, a non-Christian, and he's consistent with his thinking. And he challenges science today. Really interesting stuff. But if you want to talk about what's right and wrong, if you want to talk about justice, one of the best places that people are going to today is by this 19th century German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. And maybe you've heard of him. Nietzsche lived in Europe among the cultural elite. And during his time in the 19th century, he lived in a situation where people at that time refused the idea of God. 
but still wanted to believe in human rights, equal dignity of every person, the value of the poor and the weak, the necessity of caring for them and advocating for them, and they still believe that love is of great value and that we should even forgive our opponents. But they wanted to give the, get rid of the idea that there was something bigger out there. They wanted to say, we don't need all this. All we need to know is these ideals. They get rid of the idea of the Christian God, but keep the ideals of love, justice, goodness for all. Now, follow me along here, okay? Because Nietzsche looked at that during this time. Philosopher that he was, he says, give me a break. He was an ardent atheist. You are so inconsistent. And this is where he says in one of his books, Twilight of the Idols, he says this, quote, When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. It stands or falls with faith in God. Nietzsche was saying this, you get rid of the idea of God, you don't have morals. There's no way to justify this is right or this is wrong. It's just you saying what you believe, what you feel. There's no way to say that this is applicable to all people. And, athe- and free- uh, Nietzsche was so, so consistent, hard consistent with that. He says, you can't have that. Right? And so how does Nietzsche say we should be living? Well, in, in another book called Beyond Good and Evil, because he didn't believe in morality, it was a socially constructed thing that always changes, and so there's no ethically good thing in itself, he says this. Listen carefully, and I'll explain what he's saying. Quote, anything which is a living and not a dying body will have to be an incarnate will to power. It will strive to grow. It will spread. It will seize. It will become predominant, not from any morality or immorality, but because it is living and because life simply is the will to power. Exploitation, he says, exploitation belongs to the essence of what lives. It's the basic organic function of everyone. It's a consequence of the will to power, which is, after all, the will to life. You hear what he's trying to say? Look at the world around you. If there's nothing out there and all we have is here, then everything is just natural. And what's natural? You look at everything that lives, everything that acts. The stronger always takes over the weak. The powerful always controls the powerless, right? You eat smaller animals, right? You kill weaker things. Everywhere in nature, it says the same thing. What makes you think that humans are any different? And so the idea of good or bad, that that, that doesn't matter. Those are things that just help society grow. But if you really want to be truly human, you should live in pursuit of power. Because that's the only thing that matters in this life. Nietzsche argues that if we believe we're here by accident through a process of survival of the fittest, then there can be no moral absolutes. Life must be, if anything, about power and mastery over others. It's not about love. And that, declared Nietzsche, is the only way to live once you are truly willing to admit that there is no God. That's why one of his famous quotes is this, God is dead. And people around him heard that, and they said, who lives like that, Frederick? You're a madman. No one lives like this. But let's bring it to our culture today. Okay, follow me, all right? Just keep thinking with me. In our secular culture today, 
you would think that the way things are going, we would be the most amoral culture in history. It sometimes feels like that, right? But ironically, here's the thing, ironically, our current culture is more intensely moral than it has ever been in history. Our current Western culture is committed to social justice, universal benevolence, human rights than any other organization or civilization has ever been. You have something going on in your life that's hard, just put a GoFundMe page. Look at how many people will just come in. They don't even know you. And, you know, in a sense, I'm thankful for that. It's not bad. You know, I'm thankful for this woke culture in some ways. I've been awoken a little bit myself. You know, when the Me Too movement happened, you know, I know stuff like that happened out the world. I just didn't know it happened that much. I have a daughter, and I'm now more sensitive to it. You know, Black Lives Matter protests, you know, that was a big thing. It was always there, but it blew up in the past couple of years. It's kind of, you know, been quieter these days. But right after that, Asian hate crime. It's like the Asians say, hey, what about us? You know, let's do our thing, right? And I don't know, I, I, I marched for the BLM locally. It was all right, you know. Like, I, didn't, I didn't do anything when the Asian hate stuff came out, right? I, I was just waiting for the Native Americans' turn to come do their thing. But uh, even that, as sad as the turnout was for Asian-American protest, I wonder if anything like that would have even happened if BLM didn't happen. So we are so into, in a sense, what's good and what's right, what's wrong and what's not. But the irony is this, much like Nietzsche's culture, still secular sociologists and biologists today want to say that ideas of wrong and right are still socially constructed. There is nothing inherently morally wrong or right and nothing absolute for all people. And yet at the same time, all you keep hearing is, that's wrong. You can't say that. This is bad. This is good. You shouldn't do this. You're wrong. You're canceled. You know, we act, you know, our morality is absolute. And Nietzsche would ask, how do you do that? How do you justify that? What makes you think just because you feel it's wrong or a group of people feel it's wrong, that you have the right to tell another group of people that they should follow you? Because everything is all we have is here. And we decide. Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher from Montreal, an emeritus professor at McGill University. I didn't realize how many smart Canadians were out there. Uh, wrote this book all right, called The Secular Age. <clears throat> I don't know if you've heard of it. One sociologist, Robert Bella, says it's one of the most important books in his lifetime. He's not a Christian. I don't think he's a Christian. Uh, but he's so insightful, and it's a, like 875 pages long. So I, I'm not, I didn't read the thing. I, I just read sections and chapters of it. And Taylor says in his book, as he looks at our culture today, that the way we determine what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is not, is us, simply put. He uses the word, we are morally self-authorizing. And that's what we believe about ourselves. He says, we are legislators of our own meaning. So that secular ideas of justice and morality are, what he says, self-authorizing. In other words, this is what he's saying. This is what he sees. He says, what we say is this. This is right. This is just. How? Because we say so. Because we feel. 
this is wrong, and this is right. And so in other words, our culture is becoming more, it might seem our culture is becoming more and more irreligious. At the same time, we still can't be consistently thoughtful the way Nietzsche was. We still want to believe in ideas of wrong and right, even just and unjust, and things like love. But the problem that Nietzsche is trying to say, and the problem that uh, Taylor is saying is this. We want to say there are stuff like this, but we don't have the moral source or foundation in which to ground those ideals. It's just because we say so. Um, Tim Keller in his book, Communicating Faith to a Skeptical Mind, says it best, best this way. And he questions, quote, on what basis can you say you shouldn't do X even if you feel like it? And in a self-authorizing morality, you might feel X is wrong and refrain from it, but then, for example, on what basis can you tell governments from the other side of the world that they need to give human rights to women as well? Why should your feelings and inward moral intuitions about a given issue overrule theirs? What happens when yours differs from the people in other cultures or from your neighbors or siblings? The only way to get from moral feelings to moral obligation is to appeal to some moral source, end quote. The only way to get from, I feel like this is wrong, to this is wrong for every people, is to appeal to some moral source above both. If there is no moral source outside us, if there is no God, then Frederick Nietzsche was right. Because without a moral self or without a moral source outside the self, the only way to resolve conflicts when we disagree about what's right and wrong, according to Nietzsche, is to exercise power. It means to say to others, this is right because we say so and we have the power. We have the influence. We have the majority. We have the most people on you know, Snapchat and Instagram to force you to comply. Nietzsche was right becomes about power. And maybe that's why social justice is so politically charged, not because of bipartisan loyalties, but because about power. Because justice and what's right and wrong determined by who gets to call the shots, right? Who gets to say, this is it? Who makes the rules? Who has the bigger voice, the widest influence? Who has the majority opinion? It's a problem. But for us, we believe in morality and justice because why? We believe in a source of morality outside of all people. We believe in a God of goodness and justice. We believe everyone has a sense of morality and justice simply because Genesis chapter 1 and 9 show every human being is made in the image of a God who is also of morality and justice. And that's why we feel that some things are terrible and that's why we feel that some things are wonderfully good because that's how we are created. We have every warrant and reason and justification to pursue goodness and justice for everyone because the biblical emphasis is clear. You know, caring for the poor, caring for the marginalized is everywhere. You read Job, you read Psalms, you read Proverbs, and it's constantly talking about living justly, not empowering yourself, but by disadvantaging yourself for others. 
caring for the rights and needs of the poor. You read Amos chapter 1 and 2, how God holds nations responsible to standards of social justice. You might not be a social justice warrior. I'm not telling you to go make a protest or anything like this. But at least intellectually, rationally speaking, we have every justification to pursue goodness and justice. Not just for your clan, your society, or your culture, but for all people. And I would argue we have more reason than even those people out there who are pursuing justice right now and yet refuse to acknowledge God. But the second thing here I want to show you is this. Not only do you have the most reason to do it, you also have the greatest motivation. The greatest motivation. Think about this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 through 8. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Here's your motivation. You know, you might say, okay, I understand this, but what's my motivation? Here it is. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Think about that for a minute. He was rich, but became poor on the cross. He had status as the Son of God, but became like someone who had no status on the cross. He could have called down legions of angels. He had power, but on the cross, he became powerless. He didn't say, I've got the power now. Now you have to listen to me. No, he says, I have power And this is what I'm going to do for you. He became a slave. He humbled himself to the point of death. You look at the cross. That's your motivation. You look at the cross, not just for you, but for the adulterous woman, for the lepers, for those who are outcasts, for thieves and prisoners, for people like Lydia, but also for people like this slave girl. When you look at the cross, look, if you really understand the gospel, Here's your motivation. If you really understand what Jesus did, you can't look at the poor again the same way. You can't look at your status and people's status the same way. When you look at what God did on the cross, you can't look at money again the same way. You can't look at power the same way like Nietzsche did. Because when you look at the cross, what you see is unmerited, undeserved grace and favor from God in Jesus Christ to sinners like you. And that inevitably must lead to a just and compassionate life. You read James chapter 2, and it tells us, you can't be truly saved by grace through faith and have no compassion for poor. If you have no compassion, it means there's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because you look at the slave girl, She's now not just free from spiritual oppression. She's liberated in every way, personally, psychologically, and to an extent, socially. And I think at the very least, whatever you think about all this, I think at the very least we can say this. It is not enough just to understand the gospel. Any Christian being true to this gospel will be true to social injustice just as much as evangelism, conversion, and missions, and so on. The only question is how. How? How do we do that? And that's one of the reasons, you know, I wanted to start a mercy ministry. It, it's not just to send flowers to people who are in the hospital and sick, although that, that, that is a merciful thing and very encouraging. It's also to provide food. 
It's also to maybe provide clothes, maybe, maybe water, maybe education, maybe housing, maybe medicine, maybe to those outside of these walls. Because we care. Why should we care about the poor and why should we even be involved with justice? Simply this. Because it's an extension of the radical love that we've received from God in Jesus Christ on the cross as we offer that to others. And that is the cross. That's where your moral source of Christian kindness, mercy, and justice lies. That's your motivation. So I hope and I pray as we think about these things and engage with these things, not only will you have your morality situated in a reasonable, rational place, but you'll have your motivation also in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.